All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, now in the wee hours of October 30th, 2021. Which means that um, as I speak, President Joe Biden should have landed in Glasgow, Scotland for the COP26 United Nations Climate Summit. To his humiliation, without having signed a climate package into law before he left, which was his goal. And uh, this does not bode very well for the summit. We should note that this is um, two years since the last UN climate summit, COP25 for Conference of the Parties, which was held way back in December 2019 in Madrid, and by international consensus was a total bust, a total failure, with no new agreement reached on uh, necessary international measures to meet the goals which were set forth in the Paris Climate Agreement way back in 2015. The follow-up conference, COP26, was supposed to have been held last year, but it wasn't because of the pandemic. So it was put off a year. It's now been a full two years since the last UN Climate Summit. And already, COP26 seems to be off to a bad start before it's even opened. Not exactly comforting news. The last report, which was uh, issued earlier this year, back in August, by the UN body, which is studying the crisis, the uh, IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, warned of a quote-unquote code red for humanity, finding that atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide are higher than at any time in the last two million years. Global surface temperatures have increased faster since 1970 than in any other 50-year period over the last 2,000 years at least and that many of the changes already in motion, such as continued sea level rise, are irreversible over hundreds to thousands of years. Meanwhile, I will note as an aside that the most recent report by the advocacy group Global Witness, released back in September, found that a record number of environmentalists were murdered across the world last year. A record 227 activists killed around the world in 2020 for defending the environment, standing up to resource exploitation, logging, mining, agribusiness, hydroelectric dams, etc. The report notes that since the uh, 2015 Paris Agreement, an average of four environmental activists around the world have been killed every week. And among those uh, Slain last year that the report noticed were the South African activist, Fikile Nachangase, who was leading the struggle against an open-cast mine in KwaZulu-Natal province, who was shot dead in a raid on her home in October 2020. Another one profiled was um, Oscar Iraud Adams, who was murdered in Mexico last September, who had been uh, working to help the indigenous Kumial community in Baja, California, preserve their um, local water sources, which were being diverted from their traditional lands for agribusiness. So overall, it's a pretty grim and urgent situation. And unfortunately, it um, looks from the perspective of uh, the opening of the conference, that is just going to be a more of what um, the iconic young climate activist Greta Thunberg called blah, 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 from the politicians, quote-unquote. Thank you, Greta. And uh, the reason we're discussing this tonight is not only because of the uh, a COP26 being in the news, but um, once again, one of the um, Patreon subscribers to the Counter Vortex podcast has requested that I discuss, following up on the uh, discussion from uh, a couple of weeks ago, about anarchism, discussed how uh, the question of um, devastating climate change that we are facing relates to that of anarchism and what an anarchist approach to the climate crisis can be. 
So uh, a shout out to um, Timothy Corrigan, our Patreon subscriber, way up in some extremely remote part of upstate New York, for requesting this discussion. I'll do my best to uh, try to provide some insight on this question. All right, I'm going to start by uh, saying a few words about the figure who was perceived as being the uh, the great-granddaddy of the eco-anarchist tradition, the ecological anarchist tradition, Murray Bookchin, the uh, founder and uh, guru of the Institute for Social Ecology up in Vermont, who died in um, 2006. That was what he called his theory, social ecology. And uh, I was privileged to have... Um, Spent some time with Murray in the flesh, in addition to reading several of his books, and had something of a rapport with him over the years. And his, you know, theoretical framework of um, social ecology was uh, seen as reviving the anarchist tradition for the post-industrial age, with an emphasis on community and harmony with the natural world, and getting away with, you know, the traditional radical left fetish of industrialism. However, um, his uh, ideas continued to evolve. He was always rethinking and revising his own theories and writings. And uh, late in life, he actually um, stopped calling himself an anarchist in favor of what he called libertarian municipalism. And here he meant libertarian in its original sense of anti-authoritarian. Definitely not its more contemporary sense of laissez-faire capitalist. And this theory of um, libertarian municipalism sees the municipality as the highest level at which direct self-government is possible, with higher levels, in his um, utopian vision, conceived as confederations of such self-governing entities. In his book, The Next Revolution, which was um, posthumously published by Verso Books a few years back, uh, <clears throat> several of his late essays are assembled on his uh, vision of direct democracy through popular assemblies. And he makes clear that uh, he was still seeking to, quote, replace the nation state with a confederation of municipalities, end quote. So, he still wanted to abolish the state and was still advancing a, um, a model in which decision-making power flows up from below rather than being imposed from above, which can be seen as a kind of a compromise between a pure anarchist position and a more pragmatic conception of power. And I want to discuss um, two examples, which I also touched on my last podcast discussion about anarchism, uh, where... Um, Bookchin's ideas are actually being put into practice by two uh, revolutionary movements in two disparate countries, which have both have a very deep ecological consciousness and are radically decentralist, if stopping just short of being explicitly anarchist, certainly informed by anarchism. Uh, one of which, the first which I will discuss, the Zapatistas in southern Mexico, have sort of independently developed a praxis which mirrors Bookchin's ideas without actually having been informed by his writings. The other, that of the Rojava Kurds in Syria, explicitly um, seen as a project of applied Bookchinism, if you will, and they definitely have, you know, their leadership and their intelligentsia definitely has read Bookchin's writings. And the, the Zapatistas in the state of Chiapas in southern Mexico, have based their, you know, in their autonomous zones, which are actually under their control in the mountains and in the rainforest of Chiapas, they've actually established a, a model of self-government based on what they call new municipalities, which they are carving out of the old, you know, official municipalities into which the state of Chiapas is divided. And what this means in the, um, in the mountains, in the highlands of Chiapas, is breaking from the, uh, you know, generally small official municipalities, which, you know, will conform to a, uh, a particular valley up in the, up in the highlands, uh, which are traditionally dominated by, you know, the local corrupt and brutal political bosses of these peasant indigenous communities known as caciques. 
sort of local strongmen or patriarchs. And the people in these uh, communities who are favored, the people in these, you know, official municipalities who are favored by the caciques, you know, have access to the good land. And the those who are on the outs with them are relegated to the more marginal lands up on the hillsides and the more outlying areas of the municipality. And in those more outlying areas, in very often, these new municipalities have been formed, which are governed by the Zapatistas and integrated into their parallel government, as it were, their autonomous zone. And uh, very central to what they're trying to do and have, in fact, been doing for the past generation since their uprising of 1994 um, has to do with land recovery and taking back the good fertile lands in the valleys from the cattle ranchers and, um, you know, absentee landlords and so on who have been favored by the, by the caciques. And if you visit any of these uh, villages up in the mountains of Chiapas, you can see that, you know, in the, the good, flat, level, fertile land in the valley is empty. You've got some cattle grazing there, and that's it. And then the campesinos are pushed up into the, uh, uh, the surrounding slopes on land which should not be farmed, but should remain forested to protect soil and watersheds. And of course, we all know or should know that when these forests disappear, you have, you know, paradoxically, the phenomenons both of um, flooding, because when the rain comes, the water can't be, you know, taken up by the trees because there aren't any trees. So flooding, erosion, soil being swept away by the rains and leading to siltation of the rivers below, and also in the more long-term impact, aridification, because when there aren't trees and their root networks to hold the soil in place and absorb the water, the land ultimately starts to go dry, and the whole hydrological cycle of uh, respiration and transpiration is disrupted, which both exacerbates and is exacerbated by climate change in a kind of vicious cycle. But what has ha started to happen in many of these valleys where the Zapatistas have seized control and exercised enough power that the government has essentially had to recognize their control of these areas, if not formally, over the past generation, is that the good land in the valley floor has been reclaimed and is now once again growing maize for indigenous Maya campesino communities who are no longer forced up into the slopes, allowing the forests to recover. Now, of course, you know, ecological restoration was not the aim of this movement. The aim was recovering the land so that they can feed themselves. But it was definitely, and has been, a consequence of this movement. And increasingly, there has been, you know, a, a conscious ecological sensitivity, which has started to enter into the, um, the thinking of the rebel peasants of Chiapas. Okay, then you've got the situation in the rainforest, very, very large areas of which the um, southern rainforest of Chiapas up against the, the Guatemalan border, the Lacandon Selva, as it is called, large areas of which are actually under the, uh, the control of the, of the Zapatistas. It isn't, you know, kind of like a, a patchwork as it is in the, in the highlands of areas under the control of the Zapatistas and areas under the control of the official government. But, you know, actually, you've actually got a large swath of the jungle, which is, you know, contiguously under Zapatista control. And this was because this was, uh, you know, a very, very remote and sparsely inhabited area. It was all under the control largely of a single municipality, a single official municipality, that of um, Ocosingo, with, of course, you know, the municipal seat, the town of Ocosingo, being outside the rainforest, being on the edge of the rainforest. And over the past generations, the rainforest has been colonized by campesinos from the highlands who have been, you know, looking for open land, having been forced from their traditional lands in the highlands by the cattle barons and the caciques who were hoarding all of the good land or were before the revolution began. <clears throat> the Zapatista, the, the neo-Zapatista revolution beginning in 1994 had been hoarding all of the good land and are still hoarding much of it. And inevitably, you know, this is something that we've seen 
not only in the Lacandon Selva, but also in the Peten rainforest of northern Guatemala, which is essentially a continuation of the same rainforest across the border, as well as in the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua, and of course in the Amazon in South America. After the um, the campesinos, the displaced campesinos from the good fertile lands have been, uh, you know, um, sort of spontaneously colonizing the rainforest and clearing the land in the rainforest for their nilpas, or their small plots of corn and beans, then, you know, the very um, matrix of oppression that they had been fleeing in the highlands actually follows them into the rainforest. The cattle barons come in behind them and take over the land that they've cleared for expanding, you know, their... uh, their local cattle empires. And then the uh, the peasants, of course, are forced deeper still into the rainforest, and uh, it becomes a vicious cycle, and the rainforest is destroyed. And um, this exact same dynamic in the 1980s led to the emergence of a uh, guerrilla movement in Guatemala, which was um, put down through genocidal methods by the military dictatorship in Guatemala in what um, activists at the time called a hamburger connection to genocide. But the, uh, the Zapatista movement, which had much more of an um, anarchistic spirit, by the way, than the guerrilla movement had in uh, Guatemala a decade earlier, was not crushed, largely because of the uh, you know, mass mobilization of Mexican civil society in support of the Zapatistas and activists and, uh, you know, um, sympathizers and human rights voices around the world, making a lot of noise and protesting in front of the, uh, you know, Mexican consulates in their countries and cities and so on, it became politically impossible for the Mexican state to completely crush the Zapatistas, and the movement has survived. And in those large areas of the Lacandon Selva, where the Zapatistas are in control, the land has been taken back from the cattle ranchers. Now, some land is still being cleared for, um, you know, subsistence farming by the Zapatista peasant communities, but they have effectively halted the voracious forest-eating cattle industry and the whole vicious cycle of, you know, the cattle ranches eating away into the rainforest and pushing the peasants deeper into the rainforest so that the new land in turn can be taken over. That whole cycle has at least been considerably slowed over the past generation due to the Zapatista revolution. Now, again, you know, on a grand scale, on a global scale, I'll have more to say about the whole question of scale and to what extent local action like this can really have a global impact. The Lacandon Selva is a relatively small sliver of rainforest, certainly a fraction of the size of the neighboring Paten rainforest in Guatemala or the Mosquito Rainforest, which straddles the borders of uh, Honduras and Nicaragua. And those, in turn, are but a small fraction of the size of the, of the Amazon Rainforest. But still, it's something. And it's significant as a political model, an example of what is possible. All right, let me talk a little bit about the, uh, the Rojava Kurds in northern Syria, who, as I say, are actually sort of like consciously Bookchinist. Again, they, um, when they began their, their revolution, when they began to actually seize power in their region back in 2012, they similarly began to uh, you know, carve new municipalities, as it were, out of the official governorates, as they're called, of the Syrian state. Although they actually used the term cantons, they established three self-governing cantons, Afrin, Jazira, and Kobani which together made up their um, autonomous zone and were carved respectively out of the, you know, official quote-unquote governorates of Aleppo, Raqqa, and Al-Hasaka. And beginning in uh, 2012, the uh, Assad regime, the regime of the dictator Bashar Assad, essentially lost control of those three cantons. Now, since then, unfortunately, they have lost control of much of this territory not to the Assad regime, but to um, the Erdogan regime, to uh, Turkish intervention <clears throat> beginning in 2019. So uh, the uh, sort of utopian social order that which they uh, you know, have attempted to, uh, to instate in their autonomous zone 
is uh, very much under siege, and they've lost a great deal of um, a great deal of, of their former territory, but they still control some of it, and they are still taking you know explicit inspiration from from Bookchin and social ecology, and again putting in place a um, a model of self governance which is based on local committees at the most intimate level and power flowing up from these local committees on the ground rather than being imposed down from above by some, you know, central committee. And again, since they've been, you know, informed by Bookchin, there's uh, definitely a uh, a strong ecological ethic at work. <clears throat> they call the region Rojava, although there isn't any, uh, as with the Zapatistas, there isn't any real centralized structure for governing the entire autonomous zone, but they call the entire autonomous zone Rojava, even though, you know, they're administration is very decentralized and those three cantons are really the highest level of government. Beyond that, it's more a question of coordinating rather than governing. But they call the region Rojava, which is a traditional name in the Kurdish language for that region of Syria. And the economy is increasingly based on uh, cooperatives, which have been newly formed since 2012. And again, with a very strong ecological ethic, particularly concerned with protecting the watersheds, and halting the process of aridification, which is a uh, particularly critical thing, with the actual future inhabitability of the Middle East now in grave question due to climate change. In the canton of Jazira, an um, ecology academy has been established concerning its activities with protecting groundwater, developing sustainable agriculture, and so on. I'm not entirely sure. I need to look into this question uh, as to whether it is still functioning, given the uh, you know uh, aggression that they have suffered from uh, Turkish intervention over the past two years. I will also note that um, there are contradictions, precisely because they are under siege. There are definite contradictions to um, this experiment. One of which is that the uh, Rojava Kurds are continuing to operate the uh, the old oil fields in their region, which have, you know, fallen into their hands. And again, in order to survive, they've been um, supplying oil and gas to the Assad regime. And again, because they're under siege, they're using these very uh, sort of improvised and primitive extraction methods. Uh, And people have, you know, raised real concerns about the toxic pollution which has been caused by this. So I don't want to take too much of an idealized view. Inevitably, there are contradictions. But they are attempting, at least, under the, you know, obvious constraints that they're facing to build an ecological society in the phrase of Murray Bookchin. Okay, now the new municipalities of the Zapatistas and the self-governing cantons of the Rojava Kurds are consciously revolutionary and also very small scale. But there's also been this phenomenon that we've witnessed recently of, you know, Big cities, big global cities like New York and Paris and Hong Kong and Seattle forming their own initiatives to fight climate change in the absence of any real leadership from uh, national governments on this question. Last year, we saw the emergence of the um, Global Mayor's COVID-19 Recovery Task Force, bringing together the mayors of many of the uh, cities that I just mentioned, as well as some others, such as Seoul, South Korea, Medellin, Colombia, which unveiled a plan that they uh, had drawn up calling for um, a post-pandemic new normal, quote-unquote, that would de-emphasize cars and carve out more room on the streets for bicycles. Their agenda calls for um, substantial investments in affordable housing and public transportation, and the permanent banning of automobiles from many thoroughfares, an end to public investment and subsidies for fossil fuels, and an embrace of um, the so-called 15-minute city paradigm, which is now being um, pioneered by Paris, which would uh, you know, try to um, localize city economies as much as possible, revitalize neighborhoods, and circumvent the need for commuting and traffic jams. Okay, now, of course, you know, these cities that we're talking about here, these are 
not, you know, <laughs> radical municipalist revolutionary utopias. They are definitely, you know, <clears throat> big, ultimately unsustainable, bourgeois-dominated entities. But I will also point out that many of the ideas that this task force of, uh, you know, global mayors are now attempting to put in place originated a generation ago or more from radical community activists within these cities, very often from anarchists. I'll just talk a little bit about my own city, about New York, where, uh, you know, one obvious example is that uh, our former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, who's definitely been a strong voice for, um, you know, cities taking the lead in battling climate change, where national governments are failing to act. Now, I consider him a political enemy. He did a lot of damage, a lot of very grave damage to New York City in the years that he was in power, particularly in his wholesale rezoning of working class or formerly working class neighborhoods in this city, including much of my own, the Lower East Side, Chinatown, Sunset Park, elsewhere, to facilitate mega development and gentrification and to push out the poor and working class. But he also did some good things. And the good things that he did are actually ideas that he essentially ripped off <laughs> from, like I say, radical community activists, many of which he had actually persecuted and tried to crush. The most obvious example being, um, <clears throat> you know, he uh, began putting in uh, New York City's bicycle lanes, which have uh, been steadily expanding since then. But this was. Um, his means of actually stealing the fire from the critical mass movement. And before he started putting in bicycle lanes, he had attempted to um, effectively shut down critical mass. Critical mass, of course, being the, um, the mass bicycle rides, which had been launched by radical ecology activists back in, the, back in the 1990s. Started in San Francisco, but rapidly spread to cities across the, across the world and became a very big phenomenon in New York. Once a month, people would gather for what they called a quote-unquote organized coincidence, which of course is kind of a contradiction in terms. But uh, <clears throat> we would generally meet in, um, in Union Square and hundreds of bicyclists riding together would, you know, take over the avenues. And when we were accused of blocking traffic, we would, you know, our response was, what do you mean blocking traffic? We are traffic. When the street is filled with cars, as it is every day, you don't consider that to be blocking traffic. You consider that to be traffic. So when the street is filled with bicyclists, isn't that also traffic? Not blocking traffic, but traffic. We're moving. <laughs> so sort of, you know, demonstrating through our um, activity a model of what the city could actually be like, as well as, you know, a means of um, direct action agitating for more protected space for bicyclists in the streets of New York City. And, uh, you know, Bloomberg, in the early years of his three terms in office, sicked the police, sicked the NYPD on critical mass and kind of got into an aggressive contest with critical mass, attempting to, uh, you know, shut them down. And a lot of people were arrested. A lot of bicyclists were, um, were arrested and their bicycles confiscated by the police. And the, uh, the rides, which had begun very, um, very festive and joyful and celebratory and utopian-spirited, sort of turned into a, uh, an aggressive contest with the police. And ultimately, there was litigation. Finally, after years of this, he began to back off and opted for a strategy of co-optation <laughs> and actually tried to, um, you know, <clears throat> mollify New York City's bicycle community by putting in bicycle lanes and cooperating to a degree with, you know, the more um, moderate work within the system, bicycle advocacy organizations, and again, trying to steal the fire from critical mass to a certain extent. And a lot of the, you know, stretches of street, which have now been um, close to automobiles, particularly in uh, Midtown along uh, Broadway between Times Square and Herald Square, has been uh, concomitant with um, turning administration of public space along these uh, thoroughfares over to local business improvement districts and so on, which is kind of a creeping privatization of public space, which I'm not too happy about. So inevitably, you know, these ideas get compromised as they are adopted by the um, 
by the political establishment. Yet, with this critique in mind, we still, I think, can recognize the uh, carving out of greater space for bicyclists in the streets of New York City and the beginnings, at least, the bare beginnings of reclaiming the vast areas which have been turned over to automotive transport back to human-powered transport and a more human-centered vision of development represents a victory and represents progress. Even keeping the critique in mind, we can still recognize it as a victory and as progress. Another example, which I discuss in my um, weekly Radical History walking tour of the Lower East Side, starting every Saturday and Sunday at 3 p.m. at the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space, 155 Avenue C, between 9th and 10th Streets, in the Alphabet City section of Manhattan's Lower East Side, is um, New York City's new composting program, which once again began way back in the 1970s. It's very, you know, earliest roots or predecessors was way back in the 1970s as an initiative of self-organized neighborhood activists, many of them with a very radical and anarchist-informed vision. At that time, of course, New York City was in deep crisis, and there were uh, you know, vacant lots all over the Lower East Side, as many areas of the city, but particularly the Lower East Side, where you know, abandoned housing had come down. And uh, initially, local Puerto Rican residents began to uh, reclaim that land and turn those vacant lots into community gardens. And how do you take, you know, a field full of rubble left over from destroyed tenement buildings and turn it into soil that you can grow a garden out of? Well, the first thing you do is you come into sledgehammers and you start breaking the rubble down into little pieces. And the second thing you do is you start creating soil on site through composting. So that's really where urban composting began. Now, if like most New Yorkers, you don't compost, you take your organic household waste, your vegetable clippings, your fruit rinds, your apple cores, your tea bags, your coffee grounds, your eggshells, your broccoli stalks, etc., and uh, you mix it with the rest of your garbage, your waste stream, as the technocrats call it, it gets picked up by a sanitation department, shipped out of town, dumped in a landfill, and you never think about it again. And while you're not thinking about it, it's breaking down into methane gas, it's going up into the air, it's polluting the atmosphere, and it's contributing to the greenhouse effect. Methane, like carbon dioxide, is a potent greenhouse gas. But you don't have to do that. If you um, compost, then instead of, you know, the organic household waste breaking down into methane gas and going up into the air, it breaks down into compost thick, rich, black dirt that can be put into the soil to fertilize the ground and to grow plants, which take greenhouse gases out of the air and fight the greenhouse effect. And again, you know, we jump forward a generation from the 1970s to the late 1990s and into the, you know, 2000s when the city was being aggressively gentrified. And the administrations of uh, Mayors Rudolph Giuliani And Michael Bloomberg started um, going after the community gardens. Some of them were protected under the so-called Green Thumb Program, under which the land is formally transferred to the Parks Department for protection as open space. But most of them had not been. And under Mayors Giuliani and Bloomberg, all of the community gardens, which had not yet been turned over to the Parks Department, which meant the big majority of them, were slated to be destroyed. They were going to build on top of almost every one of them. And a lot of them were destroyed. And there was a lot of public protest about this. And eventually there was a citywide activist campaign to save the community gardens. And those who, you know, all over New York, particularly the Lower East Side, but also in Harlem, South Bronx, parts of Brooklyn, where people put their bodies on the line to stand in front of the bulldozers and to chain themselves to trees and fences, literally, to protect the community gardens. This was, again, an initiative of, uh, you know, local radical environmentalists and anarchists. Eventually, enough pressure was brought that the city came to the negotiating table. There were two big deals that were worked out, both of them brokered by then-State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer 
under which most of the community gardens which survived that wave of garden destruction were brought into the Green Thumb Program. So today, most of these surviving community gardens are safe. There's still a few around the neighborhood and around the city which are not safe, which are threatened and we're going to have to fight for. The Elizabeth Street Garden is definitely in the crosshairs at the moment, but it isn't like it was um, 20 years ago when they were massively threatened. So we've by and large won the fight. And uh, similarly, in another case of um, ideas which began as a self-organized initiative of radical neighborhood activists being co-opted by the establishment, for better or for worse, or we, we could really say for better and for worse, the Bloomberg administration also launched an official composting program on top of the city's recycling program. Now, I should mention that the city's recycling program was itself similarly spearheaded by radical community activists. Now, today, if you live in New York City, you have to separate your bottles and your cans and your paper and your plastic, and it all gets picked up by a sanitation department and recycled. Although, for the past um, 20 years or so, much of it has been going to China, which recently announced that it isn't going to be taking in any more of America's garbage. So there's actually something of a, uh, a question as to what's going to be happening to all of the vast amounts of waste which are produced by New York City every day, which are supposed to get recycled. But in any event, officially, it's supposed to be recycled. But, uh, you know, this was not always the case. New York City was one of the last big cities in the country to put a recycling program in place. And as late as the late 1980s, there was no recycling program in New York City. And at that time, all of New York City's garbage, organic waste, bottles, cans, paper, plastic, all of it was being dumped on a giant landfill at the far end of Staten Island at a place called Fresh Kills, which at that time was literally a mountain of garbage. It was around 3,000 feet high. It was the highest point on the eastern seaboard, and it was made out of garbage. And at this time, local environmental groups in the city were petitioning the city council to pass a law mandating a citywide compulsory recycling program. And the sanitation department was basically resisting every step of the way, saying, no, you can't do that. You can't recycle in New York City. It's too big. It's too chaotic. Forget about it. You can't recycle here. Now, one of the things that the environmental groups could point to is the fact that people already were recycling in New York City. At that time, some of the same community gardens on the Lower East Side, which were composting and creating soil on site, were also serving as volunteer recycling drop-off points, including the principal garden, which I uh, visit on my weekly radical walking tour, La Plaza Cotaral, at the corner of 9th Street and Avenue C was one of the principal volunteer recycling drop-off points in New York City back in the 1980s. People in the neighborhood who wanted to recycle because they had an ecological consciousness would voluntarily, even though they were not required to do so by law, separate their bottles and their cans and their paper and their plastic, and they would bring it along with their organic household waste to La Plaza Cotaral. And the organic household waste would get turned into, into compost, and the rest would get recycled. The people who ran the garden actually, you know, found industrial facilities, mostly up in the, um, in the Bronx, which would take this stuff in and recycle it. And with this, um, with this model sort of serving as an example, again, this self-organized model pioneered by, you know, radical neighborhood activists who were reclaiming land in defiance of the city authorities and the real estate interest, with this model sort of serving as an example. Finally, in 1989, the city council passed the ordinance and the sanitation department was required by law to put in place the mandatory citywide recycling program that we still have today. And what we're hoping is going to happen is that this history is going to repeat itself with composting. Because again, one of the good things that Mayor Michael Bloomberg did, and God knows I don't like everything he did, and even the good things that he did, I see as, you know, a co-optation of ideas which emerged at the neighborhood level, not from the city bureaucracy. But one of the things that he did, which was good, is he put a composting pilot program in place. It began in a couple of neighborhoods in Brooklyn, principally uh, Park Slope, Greenpoint, and Williamsburg, where the city sanitation department actually was beginning, did begin to collect organic household waste. 
and it was just beginning to spread to uh, certain areas of Manhattan when it was um, shut down by the pandemic last year, and it's only now being revived. But uh, it's a start, and the city sanitation department has actually established a um, a, a pilot plant out at um, Fresh Kills on Staten Island, which used to be, you know, this huge dump. They're actually producing compost out there, which is being distributed to, um, you know, parks and gardens around the city to fertilize the soil. So this is a good thing. Okay, now between people like me, I bring my organic household waste to La Plaza Cultural every weekend, and it gets composted, and people who are participating in the official sanitation department composting program. There's probably, you know, now a few hundred thousand people around New York City who are composting their organic household waste. Now, when it's a few hundred thousand people, that's mostly significant as a political statement of what's possible. It doesn't have that much of an impact on the city's methane footprint on a global scale. But if all 8 million New Yorkers were composting, that would really have a significant impact on the city's methane footprint on a global scale. And hopefully that is what we're going to be looking at in the years to come. And the whole experience that we saw with the recycling program, you know, beginning as an initiative of self-organized neighborhood activists and then being adopted by the bureaucracy, that history is going to repeat itself. And in the in the years to come, ojalá, knock on wood, all 8 million New Yorkers are going to be composting. Okay, now ultimately, I think, I very, very fundamentally believe that for complete ecological apocalypse to be averted and for, for there to be any dignified future for the human race on this planet, capitalism and the state are going to have to be overthrown. But meanwhile, it's important for us to take what we can get and to continue to, you know, pioneer the alternatives as best we can under the constraints of the system we live under. And, you know, once again, getting back to the whole question of scale, a composting program in one city or in one neighborhood or in one garden can seem like a very, very small thing. From the perspective of, you know, the people who are going to be uh, schmoozing each other up from the corridors of power in Glasgow. But I want to point out that most of the solutions which they are proffering, and by they, I mean, you know, the more enlightened exponents of the global leadership, such as goddamn Joe Biden, <clears throat> who at least acknowledges that the problem exists, as opposed to the, you know, outright climate denialist reactionary such as Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, but just talking about, you know, the more enlightened sectors of the global leadership who are at least, you know, proffering solutions, the solutions which they're proffering are bogus. So-called carbon offsets essentially means the right to go on polluting. So-called carbon neutrality is predicated on sneaky math. It basically means, you know, we're going to achieve this so-called neutrality by continuing to pollute while supposedly canceling out the pollution with such dubious offsets, quote-unquote, as tree plantations, which do not do what actual forests do to sustain biodiversity, to protect soil and watersheds, or even to sequester carbon. Because in many cases, you know, these industrial tree plantations, which are now serving as so-called offsets, have been preceded by the burning or clear-cutting of native forests and have paradoxically become a cause of deforestation. And similarly, with so-called biofuels or agrofuels, as they're called by their critics, which have gone out of fashion to a certain extent, but they were all the rage 10 years ago, they similarly fueled deforestation, with forests being cleared in Brazil and Colombia and Indonesia and elsewhere to make way for, uh, you know, sugarcane and oil palm plantations, which were being sold to us as, uh, you know, carbon offsets because they were producing so-called biofuels, which when, when burned, by the way, also put carbon into the atmosphere. A total scam. For instance, Australia has just released a so-called carbon neutrality plan 
ahead of the Glasgow conference, which actually allows them to continue to mine and export coal. Because supposedly all of the, uh, you know, the carbon released from the burning of this coal is going to be canceled out by these dubious offsets. So a carbon neutrality plan and a response to the urgent global crisis which we're facing, which actually allows you to continue to mine coal. All I can say is, get the fuck out of here, Australia. So my reply to those who, um, you know, would dismiss as irrelevant local small-scale initiatives is to point out um, first that they can serve as models, which can eventually be adopted or co-opted, if you will, by the official power structure and, and applied on a more large scale. Looking at it more idealistically or ideologically anarchist, they serve as a living model of an alternative to the dominant system, which can ambitiously ultimately help animate a mass movement to overthrow capitalism and the state. But finally, you know, my response is that it is better to do something small than to trade in pseudo-solutions that give the appearance of progress while ultimately doing nothing at all. That's really the most critical point. And I'm just going to uh, close by noting a particular um, anarchist-inspired action, shall we say, which took place right here on the Lower East Side just this week, back on October 25th, where a bunch of, uh, you know, mostly young kids from the group Extinction Rebellion actually shut down the FDR drive, actually, you know, sat down in the middle of the roadway and occupied lanes of the FDR drive and halted traffic until they were dragged away by the police with um, at least 13 arrested. And the point here was not merely to protest the use of fossil fuels, and to draw attention to the fact that, you know, our city infrastructure is still centered around cars as the world leaders get together in Glasgow for their blah, 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 but also particularly to um, draw attention to the city's redevelopment plans for um, East River Park, which is immediately adjacent to the stretch of the, uh, of the roadway which they occupied. People may recall that with um, Superstorm Sandy back in 2012, there was tremendous um, storm surge from the East River and the Lower East Side was flooded and there was a lot of property damage. And in response to that, the city has unveiled a so-called resiliency plan, which in the most perverse of ironies actually calls for essentially destroying East River Park and closing it for a matter of years while they actually um, build a, a giant berm and actually raise the level of the park by something like 30 feet to hold back the waters in the, uh, you know, event of the next superstorm, a phenomenon being driven by climate change, as we are all aware. And this will, ironically, entail the cutting down of hundreds of trees in East River Park, something like a thousand trees, and eventually they say they're going to replant them, after they raise the level of the park. But meanwhile, for a period of a few years at least, what is now East River Park is going to be a uh, barren stretch of land, which is going to have less ability to hold back the waters in the event of a, of a storm surge. And, uh, you know, neighborhood activists are, of course, you know, have been protesting this. A couple of them actually chained themselves to a tree in East River Park for, you know, a couple of days last week to protest this plan. And they're calling for, um, as an alternative, to build a, you know, a, a, a berm or a wall to hold back the waters along the inland or western edge of the park. And they're convinced that the reason that the city is not doing that, but instead wants to destroy the park and actually turn the park itself into a giant berm, is because uh, doing it along the, the western or inland edge of the park would entail shutting down lanes of the FDR drive which abuts the park on the west, and interfere with traffic. So again, we have, you know, the hegemony of the automobile and the fossil fuel economy taking precedence 
over ecological solutions. And the more radical activists are actually calling for replacing the FDR drive itself <laughs> with a berm to hold back the waters in the case of, uh, in the event of the next superstorm. And that's ultimately where the conversation needs to be going. A crash conversion from the fossil fuel economy and the cult of the private automobile itself, as well as from the whole cult of giganticism, where decision-making power is in the hands of, you know, global elites who meet at these big summits in Glasgow and places like that in Madrid, because it's that very model of intense centralization of power, which is also ultimately driving the climate collapse. And anything that local people can do in their own neighborhoods, their own cantons, their own new municipalities, to create a counter vortex to that system and to begin to devolve power to local communities with an ecological sensitivity and even something of a utopian vision is what for me holds out the most hope at this very dire moment for the human race with our actual future survival in question. So once again, thanks to um, Timothy Carr again up in the great north woods of upstate New York for um, suggesting this discussion for the counter vortex. You as well can get to dictate what I am going to be ranting about on a particular episode by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Patreon.com slash counter vortex for just two bucks per podcast. Two bucks a week. This has been... uh, Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online, countervortex.org, where I write every day about global autonomy struggles and questions of ecology and war and peace. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.